Hello and welcome to the Life Together podcast, where we share in meaningful conversation about living for Christ and loving one another. Thanks for joining today, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we're talking about the Spirit. And I want to just ask you, what what comes to your mind when you think about the Spirit? For me, if I had to answer that question growing up, the answer would probably be nothing. There was little conversation about the Spirit, not a whole lot of teaching about the Spirit. And so, in the words of one book that I've come to appreciate, uh, ref- they refer to it as the forgotten God, and that's kind of what the Spirit was for me. I'd kind of forgotten about Him. But over the past couple of years, I've come to see that knowing the Spirit is an essential concept to having a biblical worldview, and knowing the Spirit is essential to being in a transforming relationship with Jesus— And we're going to talk about both of those things in a moment in what will be sort of a two-part series. But joining me for these next two episodes is Darrell Dobbins. So Darrell, uh, thanks for joining today. And tell us a little bit just about how the the Dobbins are doing right now and maybe a little bit about your role here at Lost River. Well, thank you, Jarrett. It's been really good working with you, and it's just a pleasure to be here with you today to talk about these things that are important. Um, and as far as my role here at Lost River is concerned, I'm, I s- serve as one of uh, eight and with seven other very competent leaders who, uh, we, who see our role as, as being that of a, a servant, but in a very special kind of service. And uh, so uh, we also serve a congregation that is very re- uh, receptive to the, the kind of service that we perform, and it just makes it a joy to serve. Yeah. Well, I know I can speak for uh, the church uh, when I say we're very grateful for um, the leadership here, for the, for the shepherds here, and for the direction that uh, y'all are leading us in. Well, thank you on their behalf. <laughs> and I've uh, appreciated just uh, personally um, since I've been here, it's been so fun to get to come here to the office every day and work with you and learn from you and uh, have a good time together. And um, it's it's been really special. Yeah, I'm thankful yeah, for your uh, influence. <laughs> yeah, we sometimes we have too much fun, but uh, but yeah. Well, okay. So for me, the spirit something that wasn't really talked about a whole lot. And so I'm just curious for you, what, what comes to your mind when you think about the Spirit? And then maybe how has that changed over time? Well, this has been an evolution in me, as it will be for anyone as they mature along their path as a Christian. Uh, the messages that I was getting, uh, and we can talk about some of the history of why this is at another time, but the messages that I was getting when I was young are, first of all, don't talk about it. Um, and when I say it, the Spirit was more often presented as it than mm. him, which I think is the first mistake. Uh, but don't talk about it. Um, get nervous when the subject comes up. Uh, tamp down anything that smacks of, super, of the supernatural. And as an aside, you know, that itself is fraught with problems because the Bible is a supernatural book, and God is 
in our view, from our view of him, he's supernatural. Now, you might say he's completely natural, having created nature, but but he is a supernatural being in a sense of the word. The resurrection of Jesus was certainly supernatural. The virgin birth was supernatural. The ascension of Jesus was supernatural. So why, when we talk about the Spirit, do we get all empiricist on, a, mm. on us and, and uh, we, we throw out anything that has to do with supernatural? So that's a bit of a, of a problem. So tamp down anything that, that sounds like it's supernatural. And if we're going to do that, then we also have to explain away anything that the Spirit might do, and we might have to come up with phrases that if that the Spirit is only in us uh, through the Word, because that brings us back to the old empirical idea that nothing supernatural is happening here. What's happening is intellectually we're being transformed as we come in co- close contact with the Word of God. Unfortunately, that doesn't quite jibe with Scripture, and there are some Scriptures that you get bump up hard against when you take that view, and we'll talk about some of those too, I'm sure. Was there a particular... Uh, class or study or w- was there something specific that began to shift your perspective at all? I can't say that there was a class or anything of that nature because th- again this is something that I wasn't taught much mm-hmm. growing up that we have to have a relationship with the spirit and that the spirit dwells in us and that there are functions that he performs none of that was taught to me but as I began reading Scripture, not just began, but as I continued reading Scripture, the evolution over time was reading passages like Romans 8 and just not trying to be just um, brave about my reading and not shying away from what I was seeing there. And what I was seeing was really hard to, to reconcile with this view that I thought I had been taught growing up, whether it was part of my imagination or whether maybe there are some other people who've experienced the same thing. Yeah. But there were just some things in Romans 8 that just did not click with with what I thought I was hearing growing up. And then you come to the question of what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe what the scriptures say or are you going to believe what you've always been taught? And one of the things that I was always taught was to go with the scriptures every time. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to be true to, to what I'm reading myself. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So you mentioned Romans 8, and at some point we're going to get to that. But uh, you spent a good amount of time on mission in China. And so I'm curious, um, you mentioned like rational and empiricism, which uh, is kind of a post-enlightenment thing that happened in the West, which maybe we'll talk about at some point. Um, But going to an Eastern country, those are not the same underlying assumptions. And so I'm just curious what that experience was like, you know, ministering to people from a very different worldview as that relates to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's a really insightful question. The, The Chinese people, being Eastern, didn't go through all these contortions. They didn't have this love-hate relationship with spiritualism. They are a spiritualistic people, um, the rub in China is that the Communist Party, their party line, literally, is secular humanism, which means no talk about spiritualism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, that's very unsatisfying to a spiritually-minded people. And so the Chinese do have this sense of spirituality, 
even though in school all their lives all they will hear is secular humanism. Uh, they are, in a sense, more comfortable talking about spiritual things than we are because of Western rationalism. Their cultural is, uh, culture didn't form from the Enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um, they still, the Chinese people broadly venerate their relatives. They, they worship their relatives after they're dead. And they have this, um, this uh, uh, celebration every year of the dead relatives to honor their ancestors in a tomb-sweeping festival every year. Mm. So it's just really a, a very ingrained and rich part of their culture, even though they don't hear about it in school. It's very easy to talk about it. It's a, it's a subject that presents well in public. You can talk about it openly, publicly, without fear of anybody thinking that you're dumb or unenlightened or ignorant or any of those kinds of things. You, you can speak about it freely, and, and that is spiritualism. You can speak about spiritualism freely uh, without the baggage, perhaps, that would, hmm. would uh, saddle some of us from the West. Hmm. Uh, so it was re- sort of refreshing to be in that culture and to be able to talk openly about things that don't present well in public, perhaps, here in the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's so that's so interesting. I think sometimes, like for me growing up, it was, you know, I would, if someone were to ask me, what do you think about the Spirit? You know, what comes to mind? I'd be like, nothing, I don't know. I wouldn't even know where to begin. And yet, at the same time, I was aware that the Spirit was also on every page. Like, especially by the time you get to the letters of Paul, it just seems like the Spirit is all over the place, um, but in trying to understand the Spirit from a biblical worldview, wh- how, where do we start? Where should we begin? Well, the creation saga in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, you see the first of the peer- appearance of the Spirit of God there. And it's not really clear what he's doing there. It's just that somehow he's participating in the creation process, in the organization process of the nascent universe. So, you, you see the Spirit of God moving on the surface of the deep or on the surface of the water, however you prefer to translate that word. And um, the word itself, um, the word, I won't pronounce it in Hebrew because I'd have to spit on the microphone, but it, um, the, <laughs> the Ruach. The Ruach. That's yeah, right. you get it. clear your throat. Okay. The Ruach. Right. Okay, so uh, the, the Spirit of God is is seen as being part of this creation imagery, and uh, perhaps then you could say it was a a sort of universal presence at the time that the, Hmm. uh, I should say, he was a universal presence at the time of the creation. And, um, And so we get bits and pieces over the history of the Jews about the Spirit. We see different views of him as you go through the Old Testament, uh, and we don't really f- gain a, a clear understanding of the Spirit and his relationship with mankind until we get past the resurrection of Jesus, interestingly enough. Yeah. Yeah, so that makes sense. Best place to start is is in the beginning, and it says there in, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, 
Then verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God or the Ruach of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so like you said, it's still a little unclear exactly what the spirit of God is doing, but evidently the Ruach of God is this life generating presence that proceeds from God's speaking, which this kind of gets into something interesting. Ruach has multiple meanings. You know, throughout our English Bibles, there's a lot of different translations for the word Ruach, but sometimes it means breath, sometimes it means wind, sometimes it means spirit, but it's, it's in Hebrew, it's all that same word, Ruach, which I think kind of paints an interesting picture here at the very beginning. It's like um, the earth was, you know, formless without void, and we know what happens next, and God said. And so it's it's almost as if God's speaking, like if you, you know, if you speak, you can, you know, if you put your hand over your mouth, you can feel the breath that comes out when you speak. It's like the spirit, the ruach, the breath of God moves forward as this life-generating force within creation. And that's our introduction to the Spirit of God. And there's some other interesting references. Uh, Genesis 3.8, I think, is the next time the word ruach is used. And um, th- this is kind of an interesting one. It is talking about when God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the phrase, in the cool of is the word ruach. So in the wind of the day or the spirit of the day, or, you know, however you want to conceptualize that, that's the, the, the picture that's being painted. So for me, I kind of always thought about Genesis 3 as like um, God, like, you know, walking arm in arm with Adam and Eve in the garden. But it, it, it is more like his presence enveloped them in the garden. Mm. Like he was there in, in the cool of the day. That is so interesting. interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's then the God of the presence of God, the Spirit of God is permeating all of creation yeah. at the time that it's formed. Yeah. I just, it's so, so interesting. Yeah. The word permeated, I think, is like a really good way of putting it. Um, a couple other instances just to, to try and, and help us get a, a picture of this word ruach Exodus 15 8. This is the triumphant, victorious song that Israel sings after they cross the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. And there's a specific phrase that talks about how by the blast of your nostrils, the waters, the the wind parted the waters. And that phrase, the blast, the blast is ruach. The ruach of your nostrils was what parted the sea. So another interesting way that we see the word used. And then uh, Genesis 6, 17 is a more familiar one. Humans are filled with the Ruach of God, the breath of life. Um, And then throughout uh, Scripture, we also see Ruach being used to describe other spirits, Um, spirits that are not the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God, but spirits that mislead nations and things of that sort. Um, which is a podcast for another time. Um, 
but anyway, all, all of that, let's, let's just like take a break right there. Um, what's kind of, what, how should we start thinking about this? Just an initial impression. What's kind of forming in our minds so far about the Spirit of God? Well, it seems to me that, that, that what's forming is a sense that where the Spirit of God is, there's fellowship between man and God. Mm. So in the garden, the Spirit would be a close sign of our fellowship, Adam and Eve's fellowship with God. Mm. And so on through the Old Testament where we see these Spirit-filled leaders who had a close relationship with God and perhaps a very special mission that was given to them by God that brought them closer to God than other people. Mm. Yeah, and, and just to make that practical for a moment, it to me, seeing the way that the word ruach is used and how that is connected to the Spirit of God gives me kind of a re-enchanted worldview. Um, I remember at some point growing up just having this feeling that God was distant as if he was so outside of this world. And the idea was almost like God is the, the clockmaker. And I even heard this analogy used rather often. He's the clockmaker who, you know, sets everything in place, sets the time, and then he takes his hands away and the clock just does what it does. And every now and then he'll step in and wind it up again to make sure it runs right. But for the most part, he's hands-off, hands-free, and things are just ticking away however they're supposed to. But this describes God in a very different way. Genesis 1 and the idea of the Ruach throughout the rest of the Old Testament offers us an enchanted worldview in which the presence of God, to use your word, permeates everything, that he's the cool of the day in which we are walking in. And that's not to say, I think there's an important distinguishment. We're not talking about like pantheism, you know, where it's like everything is God, but everything is, well, to use a very biblical uh, reference, Hebrews 1 verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it's like everything is sustained by the word of his power. And maybe we immediately think, oh yeah, he spoke the world into existence, so that's that. But it's, no, remember, the, the, the word of God is what sends forth the empowering, energizing presence of God, his breath that fills creation. So everything is sustained by the word of his power as the spirit continues to work within the world today. Or maybe a, even a, a, a more familiar one, Acts 17, 28, talks about this, in him we live and move and have our being, is what Paul says there in Athens. Um, so anyway, to me, it's like, as we start, as we start this whole conversation, to, to me, the thing that stands out the most is just that invitation to a re-enchanted worldview, that God's not distant, he's not far away. The biblical worldview is that his presence is working within the world. It is the energizing force, and the world is sustained uh, by the Spirit. Um, so anyway, I don't know, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we're, we're talking about um, mostly Old Testament, but you, you brought in some New Testament references as well, and it's interesting to me that when 
Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about spiritual things. Hmm. He invokes the hmm. idea of wind, which the Hebrews would all, of course, recognize as the breath of God, the spirit of God. And when he's talking about spiritual things, he says, well, spiritual things are more like the wind. You can't see where they're coming from, you can't tell where they're going to, and yet the reality is undeniable. Uh, so there's this this idea of spiritualism that's that is integral to the the language that Jesus used when he talked to Nicodemus. He talks to the woman at the well about spiritual things. So even when the the word spirit, when we don't if we don't see the word spirit used, oftentimes we use see the word breath or blast, like you said. This is the the notion that would come to mind of someone who speaks Hebrew and understands that that's the origin of the word spirit. Mm. Okay, so we see how it's this this creative, energizing power within creation. Where do we see the spirit uh, moving throughout the rest of Scripture? Yeah, I think <clears throat> um, you spoke about the the spirit of God permeating the garden, and while that's true, you don't really get that sense much after the Garden of Eden. It's a sort of paradise lost mm. uh, problem that was created with the original sin. Now it seems that as we go through the Old Testament, there's a there are boundaries set up between the spirit of God, between God Himself and the the common people, even the Jews where in order to approach God, you had to go through these procedures or layers of protection to keep people from dying from his presence. Mm. And so you see it at Mount Sinai, you see these layers of protection that were placed between the people, and Moses, on the other hand, he goes up as the intercessor and speaks with God directly. But you also see it in the temple, that there are these layers of protection between the people and God, and you get the high priest who's going into the most holy place that separate the essence of God, the Spirit of God who is sitting above the mercy seat from the common people who, if they marched into the Holy of Holies, they would die on the spot. They'd never even get that far because there'd be a temple guard there to kill them before they made it that far. Um, and if you didn't come to God in the right ways or having performed the right purifications, uh, you'd be struck down. And so it seems that as the Old Testament progresses, we find ways to get closer to God uh, through accepted means. And of course, the ultimate accepted means is through Jesus Christ uh, when he comes and gains access to the Holy of Holies for us once and for all. So um, the Spirit of God, I think, kind of was distanced from people through much of the Old Testament, and yet um, there were signs that were given. Uh, for example, the high priest would have anointing oil placed on his head. And in the New Testament, we learn that anointing is connected with the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, and in fact, we learn that, that this anointing is also uh, a, a way of God showing his approval for certain people. And so you had judges, and you had priests, and you had kings that were selected, and they were anointed to show that the presence of God was with them. And when they were anointed, they had abilities, they had uh, understanding uh, that they could convey that was different from the, the other people around them. So the Holy Spirit at this 
during this period of time seem somewhat distant from people at large, and yet there are aspects of the Holy Spirit that are being imparted to certain people who had certain functions. Mm. So, Spirit of God, different post-garden. There's something that's changed. There's something that's shifted. Mankind doesn't experience the presence of God in quite the same way. But then we get to the Exodus and to Israel arriving at Mount Sinai, and it's like taking us back to the garden. Um, Exodus 40 and verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So you hear this phrase repeated twice, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And again, it it should draw our minds back to the beginning, back to Eden, back to the garden, that now the presence of God is going to be experienced in not quite the same way yet. God's still working out those plans in history, but to this point, it's now, okay, my glory, my presence is going to come and dwell in this tabernacle and later the temple, and this is uh, a means of fellowship with my covenant people. Well, we see, as I said, the the high priest being the anointed one who now has the ability to come into this mm. close fellowship with God that other people didn't have. We have these uh, spirit-led leaders, the judges, upon whom many of it, it, the, the, the verbiage is repeated often about these people, the Spirit of God came upon him and he did thus and so. So you have all these judges, and um, very often in uh, religious literature you'll hear them called the charismatic judges. It's not charismatic in the way you and I might think about it. It's charismatic in the sense that the Spirit, actually it's, the Bible tells us that the Spirit came upon them, and as a result they did these things. Uh, it's said several times about Samson. You know, Samson mm-hmm. was uh, a very uh, colorful character, wasn't he? <laughs> he certainly had his share of foibles, but one thing that he had that people around him didn't necessarily have and what he might be known for was that the Spirit of God came upon him many times, mm-hmm. causing him to do different things in the Lord's service. So the the judges is just another example uh, if you recall in David's sin with Bathsheba, his plea to God was, uh, cast me not out of your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David was a prophet, uh, but he was also the appointed king, the man after God's own heart, whom God himself chose as the person to lead Israel. And when he chose him, he put his spirit upon him. So again, you have people that are designated for certain jobs that seemed to have a special dispensation of the Spirit that allowed them to perform their unique function. Okay, so so it's like not only does the Spirit of God fill places, but now it's also the Spirit of God fills people, which I think the first 
time we see that happening is in Genesis 41 with Joseph. So at the beginning of that chapter, uh, the Pharaoh, he has a dream and it says his Ruach was troubled within him. His spirit was troubled within him. But then at the end, verse 38, after long story short, Joseph comes to interpret this dream and he does give the interpretation and it's favorable. Uh, it's wise. Pharaoh says, or he describes Joseph as having the Ruach of God. Um, first time that the Ruach works in someone, empowers mm -hmm. someone to do something. And then other instances, I mean, I guess it's interesting. Um, Bezalel and Oholiab are two characters who are empowered to construct the tabernacle. So we see this theme. It's not all over the place, but we see this theme. You mentioned the judges, the kings, particularly David. We see these different individuals throughout the Bible who are empowered by God's Ruach, who uh, have his wind, his breath in them. Well, I mean, the, the list could go on for a long time. I mean, think about Daniel right. and how he was recognized to have the Spirit of God on him that allowed him to uh, offer sound advice to Nebuchadnezzar and allowed him to sort of walk through that foreign kingdom with such grace and, and, uh, and still survive uh, this sort of uh, pag hostile pagan culture around them uh, and would allow him to excel like Joseph did, allow him to excel in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. The prophets are spoken of as uh, being filled with the Spirit of God. Um, and the the one that you mentioned that I thought was really interesting, like the, the, the priests being anointed, which is so interesting to think about, okay, what is it that allows us to, to, to ascend back to the presence of God? It's the presence of God being in us. Mm -hmm. It's us being anointed and filled with that Spirit, uh, which will work out in more detail when we get to the New Testament, I guess, but that's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely be told that point blank, that it is by the Spirit of God that we'll be recognized as recipients of the inheritance, uh, and, and I'm sure we will talk more about that later. But uh, 1, John chapter, or, uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20, in trying to tell the Christians that these other people who say they have a closer relationship with God than you have, mm -hmm. and so you're somehow less and they're better. John says, no. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. So again, mm -hmm. John talking about the Spirit of God upon them that makes them in no way of l less importance, less significance than these other people who are claiming to have some special relationship with God. So um, the anointing at in First uh, John chapter two, is broader and it encompasses all the the Christians to whom he's writing. So, God's presence fills particular places. the The Spirit fills particular places, like the temple and people. But then we start reading about a particular individual who 
is going to be filled with the Spirit. It's like as we're reading through, there's this particular anointed one. Um, so let's let's talk about that. Sure. Well, um, you know, the prophets are really uh, prolific in talking about the, the Spirit of God. And there are a couple of passages um, that, I, that we could look at. One is in Isaiah chapter 32. Um, to capture the context, you'd go back to verse 11, and you'd read all the way down through verse 20. But there are a couple of verses in the middle of that, starting with verse 14, that say, For the palace is forsaken, describing the, the situation of Israel under ruin, now that that uh, they're going to be taken away into captivity. The palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become ruins um, forever. A, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed as a forest. So here we have this, what I think the Jews would all have the message, the Jews who, who are looking for a Messiah would have recognized as a messianic scripture that talks about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that will help to accomplish this renewal that's taking place. Okay, so again, let's, let's try to wrap our minds around um, everywhere, everywhere we've been. So, Spirit of God is the Ruach, the wind, the breath, the spirit. And what we see the Ruach of God doing throughout the Old Testament is filling places and filling people and moving toward filling all creation. That as the presence of God was lost after Adam and Eve left the garden, God has this plan in which his spirit will bring new creation and will permeate the world, or the way that the prophets sometimes put it, the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what all of this is pointing to. But it's interesting, it, it all seems to hinge on a particular person um, who's filled with the spirit, the, the anointed one. So Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated, they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. And you 
will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. So he, he talks about this same kind of renewal and restoration that the Spirit is going to bring, but it all is initiated by this particular anointed one who has the Spirit of the Lord upon him. Well, I mean, uh, the, it, this immediately brings the imagery to mind, to my mind of Jesus at his baptism, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, what we usually, we think of the anointing as being connected with the Spirit, and indeed it was throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, as we'll see. But the ultimate anointing is when the Spirit of himself descends upon Jesus as a dove at his baptism. And this is one of the several different mental images that God gives us of the Spirit of God uh, throughout the Bible. There are many images. You have the rushing, the sound of the rushing mighty wind. You have the cloven tongues like fire sitting on each of the disciples. You have, um, now you have the, the dove uh, coming down out of heaven. And all of these, the anointing itself, you have the hovering presence in Genesis chapter 2. So you have all these different snapshots that are capturing an aspect of the Spirit of God. But here in, in uh, the baptism of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God landing upon him specifically in order to anoint him for the task of redeeming all of mankind. Um, and so you have in the imagery of the, the priest... You have the anointing, Jesus becoming the great high priest and having the anointing. In the image of the king, you have an anointing. And in the image of Jesus, you have the, the, the priest with the crown on his head from uh, the book of Zechariah prophesied that he would be a king. And Matthew goes to great lengths to show that he was a king, that he is a king. And then you have also the, the prophets of the mm-hmm. Old Testament mm-hmm. being anointed. And in Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes upon him, he's the greatest prophet that has ever lived. So all of these images that are all connected with with anointing are all concentrated in one person, uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. So the, the triple anointing makes him the anointed one in whom the Spirit of the Lord is upon. And right after his baptism, right after this, the the dove uh, comes upon him, which maybe that's a good place to pick up next time. But right after that, he goes into the synagogue. And what does he say there uh, in his hometown? The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He turns to the scroll of Isaiah and he reads that exact passage. And he said, he rolls up the scroll and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And even before that, it was a very early, agreed, it's a, it's a very early event after Jesus' baptism. But what immediately happened after Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. So it, it, 
it just goes from the anointing of the Spirit of God coming upon him in the form of a dove. Now he's being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He comes back to the people and he says, the Spirit of God is upon me. So yeah. clear. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm excited to dig into that more next time. And um, you can probably see where this is going if you're listening. This is about to get extremely practical. This maybe so far has been kind of heady and we're looking at it's a kind of a word study and hopefully you found it like interesting and inspiring but uh next time we'll we'll dive into uh what this all means within the new testament and how jesus and paul talk about this um but just to finish off in isaiah 61 i think it's this this interesting movement that we see it starts with the anointed one in upon whom the Spirit of the Lord rests. And what does he do? He binds up the brokenhearted. He brings good news to the poor, freedom to the captive, all these different things. But then um, it, it, sort of, it sort of shifts. It says that all these people who he has touched, as it were, anointed, um, all, all of these people, they uh, receive oil of joy instead of mourning they're anointed with this sort of oil of, of of gladness and it says they will be called oaks of righteousness and then it starts to talk about what they will do how they will rebuild the ancient ruins and they will restore the places long devastated and they'll renew the ruined cities and, and all this uh, all of these things that they are now taking part in and they're going to be called the priests of the lord the ministers of God. So we see where this is going all the way back in Isaiah 61. It starts with the anointed one who comes, but then my spirit will be poured out on all flesh, on all mankind. Um, and that's coming. And when that does, they're going to be the ones through whom God repairs this, to use the expression Lawrence and I love, the shalom shattered world. Now the Spirit's going to rest upon them and, and energize them to take part in the new creation. And you said it was going to become eminently practical, but I would add to that it's also going to get very personal. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's a, that's a good um, transition into just the last thing. Like in, as we settle into this part, like w what is the take-home so far? I think the good news is that the kind of closeness that uh, Adam and Eve experienced with the, the Spirit of God in the garden, although it was lost because of sin, the great high priest who's coming, the great anointed one who's coming, is coming to restore that closeness mm. so that we will have that kind of close relationship with God again. And it's all going toward the ultimate glorification of God's people where God will abide with them and be their God and will be his people. Mm. I suppose it makes sense that when we get to the New Testament, the Spirit is referred to as the Comforter. Mm. Um, there's a lot of hope that that brings. But Well, thank you all for uh, joining for, for this episode. And Darrell, thanks so much. This has been such an awesome conversation, exploring some of these things. And I've found it really helpful, and I'm looking forward to... Uh, to part two. Well, Jarrett, thank you. You're really easy to talk to, and it's been a delight. Thank you.